0: This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. hope that you are well. Hey, before we get started, I'm going to ask our life group leaders, if you go ahead and come on up to the front real quick here, life group leaders, if you'd come on up and uh, like the opportunity for everybody to see your faces. If you are not, uh, if you're new to Vine Life and you haven't uh, picked up on this yet, uh, can I just tell you, life groups are really the lifeblood of who we are as a church, it's the primary place where people get care, it's the primary place of connecting and building relationships like if all you have is Sunday morning, the reality is you just have this, this one big group, and it's you know it's really harder to get to know people like that. Um, there's activities you can be involved in and stuff, but can I just tell you if you really want to build relationship, if you want to have a sense of community, uh, life group is where it's at. And so we have life groups that meet all over the city. That's why we're wearing these jerseys. It's not be just because it's Super Bowl, uh, you know, Saturday. I, am I even allowed to say that on video? I don't know. But anyhow, uh, it's it's. Uh, uh, a morning where we are launching uh, our life groups with a new season we're getting ready to get into a new book and so uh, if you would like to uh, check that out they're going to be out here in the entryway uh, there's materials out there you can find out about the different groups where they meet you can visit with all of them uh, and find out what's happening in their group and get a chance to connect but I really want to encourage you this is the lifeblood of who we are as a church uh, it's where we do life together in a way that is, uh, you know, to get connected and know people. And so uh, let me encourage you to take a few moments on your way out out there in the lobby and to greet them and to ask questions. All right, thank you. You guys may be seated. Uh, actually, is there, is there getting seated? One of the things I'll bring up, the, uh, the study that we're doing right now that we're la- launching uh, uh, for the kickoff is called "Until Unity." It's by uh, Francis Chan, and the thing that uh, attracted us, you know, attracted me specifically to the book is um, not because, like, I'm a huge Francis Chan guy or anything like that. I, I was just intrigued at how m- much of it was just simply scripture. I mean, you could literally even kind of go through the book and leave out all the commentary and just discuss the different scriptures that are brought up. Uh, I- I'm, I've always, unity has been a big uh, thing in my heart. Uh, it's actually a part of, uh, you know, uh, why we pray for a different church every week and, and things like that. And, um, it, you know, one of the things that uh, it struck me was that a lot of passages that I was very familiar with, and I knew they said something about unity, but didn't realize just how many passages just really focus in on that theme. And so when you looked at it collectively like that, I thought that the, probably the greatest worth in the book was just putting all of those together and making us look at some of those passages that we tend to think about in terms of other subjects, and realize that actually the core subject there was not what we thought it was, but it really was unity, and uh, just what a how significant it is to the heart of God um, that brethren would dwell together in unity, and that you know of the things that it says that God hates, you know that on the top of the list right is that when people sow discord among their brothers and so i I just think it's man that is so significant for us to be concerned about loving one another and loving the larger body of christ so all right we are in mark chapter 7 this morning mark chapter 7 you want to go ahead and open your bibles that direction let me encourage you to do so you know uh today as we're getting ready to dig in the text a, a couple of things that i want to remind us every week You know you i know some of you are probably getting tired of it you've heard it for seven times now uh you know get ready to hear it for you know another uh nine times uh but listen the 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 book of mark uh, is unique Uh, the the biography that uh, mark writes is unique from the other biographies that are written specifically because mark has a particular agenda that he's trying to get across he's writing primarily to a gentile audience And so that's why he leaves some of the content out that are in the other Gospels, he's not trying to prove things like lineage, he's not doing as much to emphasize those Old Testament prophecies, although he does mention them, he doesn't go into depth in them like it does like in Mark and others. Uh, instead, uh, I mean, excuse me, like Matthew and others, but uh, uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's very thematic, it is very specific in bringing us to a place where as Gentile readers, we would start to discover who Jesus is, that we would uh, uh, moment by moment have an unveiling, uh, we would have these hints that would begin very in the beginning of the Gospel, but as we make our way through, uh, especially if you're a first time reader, that you're now uh, having these things written revealed to you uh, learning about who he is and being convinced he's building an argument line upon line for you and I to follow and to understand who Jesus is it's also very kingdom centric uh, in terms of uh, the way it's written the heavy emphasis on this idea of that the kingdom is now it's already present through the ministry of Jesus it continues to be present through the ministry of the disciples, uh, uh, through you and me today, and yet there's the sense in which the kingdom is not yet. And so we live in this tension of where the kingdom is breaking into our world, it's changing the world we live in, it is is conquering the world we live in, one heart at a time, not by oppression, not by might, not in the ways that the world uh, conquers, but through the kingdom of God manner of bringing life, taking over the scene, infusing the scene, with life and hope, with healing, renewal, and setting a whole different course that is completely contrary, and contradictory to the kingdoms of this world and eventually transferring the kingdoms of this world into the, the hands of the Father in such a way that we would say that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and God. So here as we uh, look at this, uh, chapter 6 last week, uh, theme uh, the, of faith was very central to the text. And, and we dealt with issues of faith and not having faith. And the difference between uh, a, a person having faith Some faith, but needing to grow in their faith, having limited understanding. Versus sometimes when people had uh, tremendous experience, they saw things, they uh, understood clearly, they saw miracles, signs and wonders, and yet it says that they were hardened in their heart, they were hardened in unbelief. And that we reminded us, you know, that simply that faith is about the things, not just what we see, but the things that are unseen. It's the confidence that we have through those things of God at work in our hearts, and our personhood, uh, the unseen kingdom and how it translates into our life, and that belief and unbelief can you know, sometimes live in tension in our own lives where we know things because we've experienced the presence of God and yet we wrestle with things we do not understand, experiences we have, uh, uh, sometimes like, just like what uh, Jason was talking about earlier, that on one hand we are confident in his salvation, in, his, in the hope that comes uh, through the kingdom of God, and yet sometimes we experience things in life that we're, that's not the way we expected it. It's not the way that we would see. Sometimes we're hurting and we're wondering, God, where are you in the midst of that? I don't understand the situation. And yet uh, that's not what we're talking about in terms of doubt. And then we zeroed in on the whole issue of doubt, that the Pharisees that... Uh, Judas and others had first hand encounters and experience and yet they hardened their heart and that that is a significantly different attitude. Today, as we head into Chapter Eight, we're returning again to the Decapolis. Last uh, couple of weeks, we keep visiting the Decapolis uh, in the course of his journey. Uh, Today, we're going to make a journey back to the Decapolis, uh, as well as Tyre and Sidon. And these are mixed areas where Jews and Gentiles would gather, were you know, living together uh, in uh, you know disharmony. Uh, you know, not gathered together in harmony, not gathered together in unity, the absolute disharmony. It's still that way today uh, there in, in uh, those uh, outlying areas around uh, uh, Israel. And so here was a place where uh, there is tremendous tension that is growing. And as Jesus' gospel is being proclaimed there in those regions, uh, it is having a profound effect on the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. If it was in tension before, it's in greater tension now. Uh, One of the things we recognize about the kingdom is when the kingdom of God comes, uh, as much as we would like to believe that everybody just gets on board, everybody celebrates it, the reality is it actually has a way of driving a wedge between belief and unbelief. It calls us to a moment of decision, Uh, and it can even sometimes be dividing within families because it calls us to wholeheartedly give ourselves to the gospel to Jesus and so just by that simple fact of when we surrender to him and to his kingdom when we surrender to the message of the kingdom that is so contrary to the ways of the world and the way of life like listen it creates its own natural tension though we may never say an unkind word though we may be actually good citizens uh, though we may actually be uh, helpful gentle thoughtful and all those things that just the very nature of the gospel creates this schism uh, that exists between the powers of darkness and the powers of light and you and I find ourselves kind of playing a part watching the epic uh, scene of the ages unfold and so if we're on his side that we are naturally the enemies of Satan, the enemies of the powers of this world, no matter what we do, is if we are living in step with the kingdom, it creates a great tension. Here we're going to watch this come into greater conflict as we get into chapter 7. So with that said, got a lot to cover this morning. Mark chapter 7, beginning verse 1. If you're using phone or tablet, please set that to silent. I'm going to read from the ESV. Please follow along in whatever translation you have. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever I would have given you would have gained from me, Uh, It is Corban, that is, given to God, that you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and they said to him, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and then is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and they defile a person and from there he arose and went out to the region of Tyre and Sidon entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from Tyre and Sidon and went through to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when a great crowd gathered, they had nothing to eat. And he called to his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them will ha- come from a far way. His disciples answered, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and had given thanks, and he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and he sat the crowd down... And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to these also set before them, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately got into his boat with his disciples, and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So, as I said at the beginning, I want to emphasize again, this is not chronological, right? You go from this series of events to like well they 've been there together for three days. you know I, When you try to read the uh, Gospels in a chronological way uh, you 'll find that very frustrating. Remember, they are written thematically. They are not written chronologically. In fact, if you look at your Bible as a whole, you will notice that most of it is not chronological. Uh, there are some tools out there. If you're just curious, you can get, like, the Chronological Bible by Eflagard Smith and some others uh, that attempts to do that. Even then, there's some difficulties, like where they have, you know, insert Job in that. Uh, uh, Job is the earliest book of the Bible uh, and uh, was written significantly before the other books. Uh, and isn't specifically uh, just uh, a Jewish uh, uh, book. So uh, you know, in terms of uh, trying to organize that, it becomes a little bit more difficult chronologically uh, in that way. But nonetheless, uh, it's not chronological, rag- organized thematically, and so we have these events being put together in a really specific way. The chapter begins with that contrast, Uh, where he's setting out the difference between what the scribes and the Pharisees are saying versus what he is saying. And specifically, uh, we realize that the contrast isn't just like, it's not pitting Jesus, the teacher, against uh, the teachings of Moses or the teachings of the Pharisees or the teachings of the scribes. right? Instead, there is a real clear distinction here that Jesus is uh, talking about the tradition of the elders, the traditions of the Pharisees, the scribes, et cetera, something that is known as halakha. Now, if you kind of recognize that uh, term, uh, even when you think about uh, in Islam, uh, a halal diet and things like that, there's these root words that are there that are talking about uh, the ideas of purity and things like that. Well. In terms of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, post-Maccabean era, if you go uh, between the Testaments, uh, talking around uh, the you know, 600 mark and going forward, uh, they were looking at the whole issue of ta- being taken into captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity, things like that. And uh, the Maccabees, uh, Hanukkah is because of them fighting back against the world powers at that time would have been the greeks pushing them back uh, and re-establishing worship in the temple and they said to themselves how do we keep this from ever happening again and the conclusion was what we need to do is we need to keep the law it, you know the prophets emphasized again and again that we were not actually keeping the law. Now, there was actually many things that were specifically pointed out within the law, but the idea that, uh, just broadly was if, if we can defend the law, if we can keep us from breaking the law, then we'll never have another time where we will be exiled from our land. And maybe, maybe in fact, if we actually live this way, the Messiah will come and restore our land to us. That was the thought. Sounds like a kind of legitimate thought if you're just thinking about it in terms of that. Hey, I you know I got in trouble for this. Maybe if I do this better, uh, then everything will work out, right? I mean, you know, that's not an illogical kind of conclusion. We might actually look at that and go, "Hey, yeah, these Pharisees, you know, they." I mean, sometimes they sound kind of stupid in the New Testament, but you know, when you think about it that way, they sound actually kind of brilliant, right? You know, and and so uh, listen, uh, religious people are really good about creating formulas for things, though, instead of actually changing the way they live. And in this instance, their thought was this, we will build a fence around the law. In fact, if you look uh, in some of these uh, writings in terms of like the Mishnah, uh, it says this verbatim, we will build a fence around the law so that we cannot break the law. It's kind of the idea like, you know, you, you, you put a fence around the pool so your kid doesn't fall in the pool, right? I mean, uh, the idea is if you can't get to it, you can't, you can't get hurt. And so their thought was, well, if we just make up these laws to clarify how not to break the law, then you won't do it by accident. It sounds like wisdom, doesn't it? And yet the reality is, you know uh you know i think back even like i remember when i was in high school and uh you know i can remember all these rules that my friends had i I didn't have any of them my parents you know like i was the baby of six and the closest one of my age was nine years older than me my oldest sister was 17. She, was, she had kids, okay? I, I, so, you know, I, 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 in fact, my niece like, was one of my best friends. So, uh, you know, uh, so the reality for me was completely different. And I listened. listen. My friends had things like, you know, uh, when they had to be home, you know, curfew and all that kind of stuff and, and things like that. And so I watched this, and what I realized is that in the midst of all these rules, they were still doing all the same things I was doing. They just had to do it in a shorter amount of time hello and and the reality was that no matter like whenever the ones that weren't allowed to go to the school dances can I tell you they lusted after the girls just as much as I did it didn't actually change their heart and their attitude they just had rules that they couldn't go to the school dance and so they just you know forgive me but they fornicated in the back of their car instead of going to the school dance it didn't really I don't want to paint a bleak picture but I'm telling you about my group of friends Building a fence around a law will not keep you from violating the law if your heart isn't right. You can can just keep building fences, you can keep building fences all you want, but it doesn't change the heart of the person. And so here, he's setting the contrast between these traditions, the halakha, the fence around the law, that they are thinking is going to make all the difference and is going to rescue Israel. And, but in doing so, listen, Mark positions it differently than everyone else because what Mark is doing very intentionally is he's questioning now the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. That's why everything that will unfold from here is about Jesus interacting with Gentiles. So you want to keep that all together. Like he's, it's been very intentional about what's happening here. Now, the teachings of Torah on cleanliness, let me just say this really clear, because I don't want to sound in any way like I'm like you know, anti the First Testament. The teachings in Torah on cleanliness are actually very beneficial, specifically in terms of health, The control of disease, the role of hygiene. Like, there are things in there that we didn't realize until just, you know, less than a century ago. Things that we're beginning to understand and that now we think is just kind of commonplace. Uh, And so when we read that, you know, they were washing their hands, like, we would think to ourselves, well, duh, you know, does anybody, you know, after 2020, does anybody not wash their hands? But if you've been to the men's bathroom, you know that, no, not everybody does. why I don't let people reach into my bag of chips just saying anyhow so it we're not talking about then him like encouraging people to break the law we're talking about that he is contradicting a burden that has been put on the people of God that was supposedly meant to support them but the reality of Helakah was that it was actually creating Keeping burdens on them and i mentioned a few weeks ago i'll bring it up again like what does it mean to work on the sabbath and and they had it so defined that like well a sabbath day's walk is the walk from your house to the nearest synagogue now if you have to stop and pick up like say a dozen eggs on your way back from synagogue at your neighbor's house then you measure that distance and you tie a rope to the front of your house and then that way that way by the time you get to the end of the rope, you've just now left your house because it was attached to your house and now you can walk that much further so that you don't break the law on the Sabbath and things like that That where you just get in this endless, like dizzying kind of foolishness in hopes that you don't break the law. And in this situation they're hungry, they need to eat, I would encourage you to wa- please wash your hands before you eat, and like I said, wash your hands before you reach into my chip basket, just saying, okay, or into my grapes, or you know, you get it. But I tell you what, as fastidious as I am about washing my hands, uh, I've been you know, uh, out fishing, I've been camping. I've been working on projects where I didn't have that luxury and I was hungry and I still ate. How about you? I, I, there's like what's best and there's second best. The issue with halakha was simply this look, it, it not only created such a burden on the people, but here's what was really happening with those secondary rules and traditions it gave rise to a wicked wicked contempt for the Gentiles who were created in the image of God it it became the very reason for which the Jews could dismiss their neighbors It became the excuse for why the Jews instead of being the city on the hill and a light to the nations could look with contempt it became an excuse to do what is evil and in fact as I've said before when you know it's evil and you do it anyhow with a flagrant disregard for what you know is right, that is the definition of wickedness. Wickedness is when you're willing to do evil. You don't just simply do evil. You literally like justify within yourselves what you know is wrong, and you say, you know what? I'm going to do what I want anyhow. That is the high-handed. It's like looking to God and going, fingers gesture or not. I'm not listening, God. I'm going to do what I want. I will do it my way. I will do however I think is appropriate. In essence, that's what Halakha became. It it didn't start out that way. It's just that they they developed this attitude. And so what they think is holiness becomes actually evil. They actually become convinced that God shares their high opinion of themselves and that God shares their disdain for the lost. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine in the t- 21st century, the Christians who would have disdain for lost people, contempt, maybe fire off all kinds of screaming, ugly things at them on Facebook or something? I mean, I know you don't ever do things like that. Me, you know, uh, I. But where we would have such a deep-seated contempt for the lost that we would think god shares our good opinion of ourselves and our contempt for the lost and it would justify us being cruel hateful condemning and acting nothing like jesus even talking about how good it might be to have a civil war to cleanse us of all these wicked people a deep concern of mine for christians today that the church subculture has developed a code of conduct just like the pharisees just not written down it's infinitely more burdensome than anything the bible teaches and by which we feel safe to not only judge the world but judge one another if we demand a particular political ideology if we judge people who drink alcohol smoke and look contemptuously down on people for their clothing choices. How about homeschool versus public school? Both sides, I've heard contempt both directions. Joy FM versus popular radio. Heard it both ways. Games of chance, numerous other rules that are not, and I repeat, not in the Bible. Now please hear me clearly, I'm not advocating for or against some activity. (laughs) But I'm saying that when we make up rules that are not in the Bible and we apply them to anyone other than ourselves, if you can't control yourself, make up some rules. Like, right? I mean, set your boundaries. Some of us have different needs than others. Some people need to, like, go home and throw away the TV. Others, of you can watch TV and you know for a few minutes, and it doesn't bother you, you know, you just you know when to turn it off. You see something that you don't like or you don't agree with, you turn it off, you change the channel, you do whatever. You know, I mean, I, I... set rules for yourself. But when we make rules that are not in the Bible, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, and apply them to anyone other than ourselves. We are on really dangerous ground. Apply it to yourself. Do not apply it to others. Especially if after you decide that it's best for you not to drink that thing, eat that thing, go those places, that you can look comfortably with contempt on someone else. Can I just tell you that's not maturity. That's wickedness. Listen, I'm going to say it again, and you're probably going to get mad at me. But I'm, I'm used to people being mad at me, so I'm, I'm over it. When you make up rules that are not in the Bible and you apply them to other people, it's not maturity, it's wickedness. The moment that you feel safe from your perch to look down on someone else as being less godly than you you are siding with the scribes and the pharisees against the very plain teaching of jesus and that ought to make us afraid again i am i'm not advocating drinking smoking gambling anything else but i'm saying if the bible does not call that thing sin don't do what the pharisees did don't make up your own rules and then judge other people based on your lack of self-control That's sin. Okay. Moving on. So then he tells us what real uncleanliness is, right? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Because here's the thing: that's exactly what the Pharisees were full of. That's exactly what the scribes were full of. They were calling themselves holy men. They were broadening their phylacteries, and they wanted to have all the attention for being holy men. But the truth was, is that they were just as dead inside. Sometimes even more so. That's what real uncleanliness looks like. It's self-destructive. It breaks the law. Then notice verse 19. Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled. By thus he declared all foods clean. Wow. You know, it's kind of interesting. The apostles heard those words from the mouths of Jesus. And let, but notice this, the apostles don't get it until Acts chapter 10. We're talking like around a decade after Jesus has ascended. The Lord had already raised up Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9 to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus, while he was walking the earth, was healing not only Jews but Gentiles, and like nobody's getting it. The rest of the church won't even get a clue until around Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. Think about how long that really is in terms of like. Peter, uh, who uh, you know is uh, one of the great leaders in the church, and he's come to he's embraced this. He's had the vision, uh, and God has spoken to him very plainly. We've got uh, you know Paul going out as an apostle to the Gentiles, and yet they're still back home going. Well, I'm not sure if that's okay. Can you really go to those people? I think that's one of the reasons I, I believe. One, we're always learning, and sometimes we have to you know reality check, I've got to hear things several times sometimes before it th- sinks into my thick skull. How about you? And so sometimes even in my walk with the Lord, I realize that sometimes things like start to appear like real wisdom, but in the end, I like actually am finding myself kind of batting for the wrong team, running the ball and for the wrong, into the wrong goal, right? Because you know, I, I, I get wrapped around the axle about things that people say, teach, etc. But the real point is, like, as it cues up these three miracles that come next. The healing of the Syrophoenician woman, just for modern day context, that's the people of Syria and Lebanon who are not Muslim or Arab. The majority of those people today are Eastern Orthodox Christians. If you go to Libya or to Syria, uh, the, the people the, that uh, are actually Libyan and Syrian are Syrophoenician by uh, uh, their you know, genetic uh, ch- history. right? Then we have the healing of the deaf, mute, Gentile in the Decapolis. And finally, the feeding of the 4,000... Which includes both Jew and Gentile. All of which, interesting enough, were the subject of the last episode of The Chosen. So, you know, if you were watching that, you, you got a little picture uh, there. But all of which, listen, are pushing the boundaries of the gospel to include those who, according to Pharisaical tradition, according to the Halakha, were considered not only unclean but undeserving of healing, undeserving of God's mercy. You see, in their minds, they were doubly cursed. First as Gentiles, already cursed. People without God, that's what the word Gentile means. But then, even worse, it was assumed that their condition, the daughter with an evil spirit, the man born deaf and mute, were deserved. Therefore, putting them out of reach of God's mercy out of reach of God's healing none of them in church can i just remind us the truth is is actually none of us deserves mercy right none of us deserves it what we deserve nobody wants And I think that's why religious pride is so egregious. Now, as you and I take a look at these events, I I gotta address that first conversation between Jesus and the woman, because as a 21st century Christian, that's disturbing. Like, he calls her a dog, right? You know, and we're like, what? You know, like... uh, um, First of all, you and I don't know the tone with which it was spoken. You know, sometimes things can be said in a way that makes it clear that you don't mean what you're saying. I don't know if that's the case. It's text. And you know how often texts get you in trouble, right? Because there's no, you know, that's why you use emojis. And if you, you know, don't use emojis, let me encourage you to use them sometime. Um, What we do know is that Jesus said something that sounds very offensive on the surface but before we get all torn up over that i mean just read her reply in context not just as a witty reply but she's a woman of her day right the likelihood that she is giving a witty reply is very uh, unlikely she's a woman of her day So she would have known full well a few things. One, her place in society. You know, we live in a very egalitarian society where women do things. But remember, like 100 years ago, that wasn't true, right? I mean, like we can't forget that we're living in a very rapidly changing society. So if we put it back into context, I guarantee you 2,000 years ago, she probably—it wasn't probably some witty repartee. She was probably uh, not stunned at all by what he said. She knew full well. As well, she's approaching a rabbi, and if you were ever around Jews, you knew that one of the things that you didn't do as a woman is you didn't approach a rabbi without a male uh, uh, counterpart. So, in other words. Family members would have had to have taken you to go meet the rabbi to discuss things. You would have had to have a male family member, a, someone, a, a husband, a father, a brother, or something like that. You couldn't go meet with the rabbi in, in private, which is one of the things they actually did get wrong in the film last week. Um, but nonetheless, uh, my, my point just simply being uh, you didn't approach a rabbi. So, she's doing something that is socially completely unacceptable in what she's doing and coming to him in the first place. She is a Gentile and she is a woman approaching a rabbi. So, she's not just approaching a Jew, she's approaching a rabbi. Like, there's all kinds of social issues here that she is just like, she's going for broke. She is going for broke. There's a good likelihood, in another scenario, she could have ended up being stoned. Uh, She could have ended up being whipped publicly. Uh, She could have been arrested. Like, this is a big deal as she approaches him. But what else is she going to do? Her little girl has a demon. Her little girl is trapped. Her little girl is suffering. What's a mama bear heart supposed to do? Just sit. When there's hope, not care, when you've heard rumors, you don't even know if they're true, but, but if it's true, I would do anything, I'd do anything to see my little girl healed, right? And so she breaks decorum and not only asks for the casting out of a demon for a rescue, but like the boldness of her faith, the, the risk that she's taking, it all comes to, together in this and, and, and she's, she just becomes very symbolic in the way that he puts her right after. We've just talked about the problem of Halakha and how it's allowed them to look with contempt on people. It's allowed them to dismiss the law, the very law that said, you Gentile people, be the light of the world. You be the good news for the Gentiles. And now they're looking at that and they're saying, you know how we're gonna be the good news to the Gentiles? We're gonna look down on them with contempt. We're going to reign over them. We're going to talk bad about them. And then we'll tell them that, you know, like uh, we'll have a special Sunday for them to come to synagogue. And then we'll wonder why they don't come and why they don't want to hear our gospel because of the way we treat them, the way we speak about them as if they're not there, the way we enter engagements with them in public forums and why. Why would I submit myself to that kind of abuse? Apparently, if you know that there is hope in healing. But if you're not convinced, if they look just like you, if they don't act any different, if their lives are not transformed by the power of the gospel, if, if they aren't healed, if they aren't hopeful, if they aren't walking in a way that is completely contrary to the ways of the world that you're living in, then do they actually have anything Besides a club, I mean. Do they have anything? See, she heard rumors that there was bread to feed the hungry. She heard rumors that there was hope and there was healing and there was rescue. And she went to find out she was going against all decorum to break free in hopes that somewhere that there was healing, somewhere that there was deliverance. See, she was a Gentile trapped without hope. And they did not have a Messiah. The world doesn't have a Messiah. Why do you think they keep trying to escalate every every time we have a, a, a different presidential uh, cycle? You know, uh, I don't care which side you're on. Everybody has like made their president into the Messiah. Jesus often said, how happy are those who take no offense at me. The next healing of a Gentile, no such dialogue takes place. There's a man who's born deaf and mute. Again, in the eyes of the Gentiles, he is cursed beyond reach. No hope. And he presses in and he gets healed. In many ways, he is representative of the whole rest of the Gentile world, right? A, a people with no voice, a people who cannot hear, uh, particularly from God. Shut out by the Jews, boxed into a world without God. Remember, Gentile means without God. He is in every way, not just physically, but Emotionally, spiritually representative of what, what is happening in his day and time. It's completely shut out of the kingdom of God. And then we have the, the feeding of the 4,000. You know what's interesting about the difference between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 is not that the disciples were clueless, because they were clueless in both. But the difference is, is this time they're in the Decapolis. And there are Jews and Gentiles coming to the table of Jesus. And the message is clear. There is more than enough to feed them both. You see, here's the thing about when, when you and I press into the, the, the ways of the kingdom is that you're not in danger of running out or, or your people not getting enough. Like when you and I become kingdom hearted people and we begin to live the way of the kingdom, like it's I don't have to worry if I if I share what I have, if I give away what I have, if if other people like start doing the same things we're doing or they act like us or whatever like there's there's no danger, like that somehow you're not going to get healed, that you're not going to get touched. There's no danger that somehow that you're gonna miss out, or or like maybe I don't know, that the kingdom of heaven is going to like run out of room. Right? There's no danger. He's the God of great abundance. You, you take a, 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 an orange or an apple or something like that, you cut it open, and there's all these seeds inside, more than enough to make m- multiple trees, right? And then there, you look across, and there's hundreds of pieces of fruit on that tree. And then you look across the orchard, and there's thousands of trees, and you go, look, there are literally thousands of trees hiding waiting for the opportunity see that's the way god does things he doesn't need you to come up with the solution and and you know listen the church we just we kind of live in that mode of scarcity because the world all around us the household of the world all around us lives it thrives in the idea of scarcity always metering things out always resisting always deciding who's in who's out Who deserves who doesn't deserve and the kingdom of god runs right up against it smack up against it and it says no there's always enough we serve the god who's always enough that there's always an abundance that we don't live in a place of depression type of mentality instead we live with a sense of the abundance of the kingdom and the good news about the abundance of the kingdom is not for squander but it's that there's enough to reach everyone Nobody has to be shut out. There's enough grace to cover you and your foolishness and to empower you to do the works of ministry and to fill your heart and life with joy and to be a witness. There is enough. To cover your children, even those who have gone the other way. There's enough to cover your mother, your brother, your sister, your cousin, and your next door neighbor, and the people of Iran, and the people of Afghanistan. Right? That there's no one so far out of reach, not our political enemies. Not our military enemies. Not the people who annoy me on my block. Not the people who are rude, cut you off, wave at you without all their fingers. Like, there's enough grace and mercy to cover them and to cover you and to cover me. And that there is no shortage of any of these things. And so the hope, of the, the good news of the kingdom is, Come. Right? That's, that's what he's trying to drive home, and, and it's the where you and I sit right now in this moment as majority former Gentiles in this room. There might be a couple of Jewish people in this room. Apparently, according to 23andMe, I'm like 1%. I, I can't trace it down. I don't know where that 1% came from, but the reality is I, I know how I was raised long way from God. And you and I as former Gentiles are grateful that the kingdom of God was extended to those who were outside so that we could be grafted in and become inside. How heartily egregious it would be then if from that vantage point we could look down on the very people from whom we come That we could look down on our neighbors, friends, family, even the people who are far, far off and not recognize that we have sided with the Pharisees against Jesus. May it never be. Well, our time is gone, so let's stand together. So what, in your mind, is there not enough of? What what right here says, contrary to what you know is true in the Word of God, still rubs against you and says there's not enough? Maybe you need physical healing, some emotional healing, Maybe it's making room for somebody. Where is it that there's not enough? Is it because maybe your child seems on the outside looking in and you're worried about that? I would join with you. I got some in. I got some out. I got some with one foot in each side. Listen, he's not just the king of the Jews, he's king of kings and he's lord of lords, he is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is not lacking. And there is nothing about what you're struggling with right now in terms of uh, there not being enough There's nothing uh, uh, that's happening in your heart and life right now that He's not enough to meet you in that place. To remind you of what Jason was saying earlier, that He has not abandoned you. He will meet you. He'll meet you in that place. And you know, if you're here this morning and you're just... Maybe it's even something as simple as, I need the touch of the Holy Spirit. I need need God to reconnect me. I need God to fill me up. Like That's a legitimate reason to come and get some prayer this morning. It doesn't have to be just for healing. It doesn't have to be just to see my neighbor saved or something like that. It could be as simple as that, God, fill my cup today. I need you. Maybe you're here and you've let pharisaical righteousness supplant real righteousness. And you found yourself looking down on others. And what I want to say to you is there's there's no lack of forgiveness also for you. There's no lack of forgiveness for your neighbors that he that that he can work through you, even a former Pharisee, right? He takes Pharisees like the Apostle Paul, and at moments in time, if they're willing, he will put their face in the dirt and shake them loose of their of their past, and he will set them on a new course in which they will pour out their entire lives for the sake of the Gentiles. Maybe, maybe that's what God wants to do in your heart right this moment. Maybe you have been a church Pharisee, maybe you've been a church scribe. And you've been really good about intricating, you know, being very intricate and explaining all the ways in which the world has fallen short. But today, like the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I have called you to be a, a, a witness to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family, maybe even to the ends of the earth, to those who are afar off, to let go of Pharisaical righteousness and follow that which is the right way what I want to tell you is there's no lack of forgiveness for you or for those He's commissioning you to go to. Let me invite you to come get some prayer this morning. Prayer team, you want to go ahead and come on up? Let's pray. Father God, as we close out our time together this morning, we do so with a sense of anticipation that You are with us, that You are for us, that You have a desire that, to... Uh, uh, open up the hearts of the nations to pour in by your holy spirit hope and healing for the people that there is there is a opportunity for us to be your hands and feet to love the gentile because we once were to love the religious maybe in fact because we once were and to invite them into the things of the kingdom to invite them into hope healing real righteousness the freedom of the spirit life and liberty that comes by walking with you and knowing you so Lord we ask would you stir us up would you make us uh, vessels of the kingdom would you put Uh, the gospel of peace upon our feet, would you guard our hearts and minds the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Would you gird us with truth and send us from this place and from this altar to our community, to our Jerusalem, to our Samaria and Judea and even to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hope that you'll be enjoying a Super Bowl party with somebody tonight, but before you run away, make sure if you need some prayer this morning that you get some prayer. You got kids in Kids Church, let me encourage you to go get them now. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel, That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.